Hey everyone, welcome to Gods of Eden. Today's guest is Sam Perry, better known as Pez. Pez co-hosts a podcast called The Great Cricketer with Ian Higgins, better known as Higgos, which is a cricket podcast where they cover what's happening around the world of cricket, primarily through an Australian lens, but as it's evolved, more so internationally. I love their podcast, I love the chemistry that they have. They bring such fun and such a great sense of humour to the happenings of cricket. It's a voice that I've really appreciated over the past year. And as I got to learn more and more, I got to have an insight into both of them as human beings. So when I had the opportunity to speak to Pez and then look into his journey, I was both surprised, but also felt like there was a confirmation of just how great a human being he is. The conversation begins with Pez's upbringing in Sydney, but it also just covers an array of topics throughout his journey. One that I was particularly interested in was the work that he did with AIM, which stands for Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience, and then the journey that led him to the great cricketer. I think the conversation gives you a real insight into the man behind Pez on the TGC podcast, and it was a conversation that I just found really insightful. I found Pez to be really engaging, really thought-provoking in the way that he covers topics such as parenting and marriage and just the way he goes about his work is something I greatly appreciate. Please go check out the show notes and see what Pez has got going on but without further ado three two one let's go. Hey Pez how are you? Hey Luca very well thanks thanks for having me man. No 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 no. I'm um, as you can imagine I'm really looking forward to this. And I think there's, you know, potentially jarring because there's a massive difference between Luca Olius, the TGC fan that comments just, you know, side mouth gear and the host of Guards of Eden. So that could be potentially jarring, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want from me, man? Do you want do you want TGC host or who I am as well? Because there's all sorts of different uh, little masks we wear, well, isn't there? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But look, I want you to be whatever, whatever the situation calls for. And if a side mouth... A bit of side mouth kicks in. I'm I'm very for it. I just find it brilliant. So um, and I'm very much here for all the shithousery as well. Which you you <laughs> yeah. cricket is much of a game of shithousery. So, but we. I'll, I'll, I mean, you know what? It'll come. It'll come to me. Uh, it'll come to me naturally anyway. So let's yeah. just uh, let it roll. Yeah, I'll ask a question. And be like, oh, did did your research? Did you? Um. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you kick it off, you're just, you're just going to trigger me. So, you know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But Pez, first question: Can you give me a song that makes you happy or reminds you of a positive memory? I can. And you asked me this off air, and I wanted to get this right. And I'm sure the song that I give you will then be, uh, you know, fo- following this, I'll think, oh, there were seven other songs. But <laughs> one song that, um, one song that I like to volunteer for that is is a song called Berlin Chair by UMI. So they're an okay. Australian rock and roll band. Uh, they're quite. Uh, They've been around the traps for a while. They're quite iconic, and um, it's a Berlin Chair in particular is a song. It's one. Of, it's one of their. It's one of their bigger songs. But um, they. Um, it's a song actually that it reminds me of cricket actually because there was this one game I played where I hadn't played for about a year, and then my old club called me back up to first grade to play a game to help them out, and it happened to be against my former club that I just departed who were upset that I was playing and I'd received all of these kind of um, 
um, barbs and, uh, you know, for, and abuse in the lead up to the game. And I just remember driving away from work on the Friday night, put Berlin chair by UMI on, felt it pumped me up yeah, yeah. and ended up having this really good game, which was hilarious because um, I hadn't played in about a year. I hadn't trained at all. And I ended up performing better than I had ever than uh, ever in my career when I used to train um, obsessively. So I think the moral of the story was don't train or care. Yeah, which is symbol. That's very symbolic of cricket, as we all know that, you know, you're, be- you're exactly. a better cricketer for not playing. So um, exactly. I love that. And I love the story. That will live on the Gods of Eden soundtrack on Spotify, which you can find in the show notes if you're listening to this now. Right, Pez. Something that um, I read about, and I won't get into straight away, but it was you talking kind of loosely about your childhood, which I really appreciate. Obviously, I get to see the TGC presenter, the TGC kind of figure, as it were. Like you said, it's like a bit of a mask, but... It was really like heartwarming to hear about hear you speak about your dad and kind of your childhood. And I was wondering, how do you remember your childhood and what was a young Pez like growing up? Uh, well, I remember my childhood really fondly and I'm really grateful for that. You know, I really, um, you know, I was, a, I was a happy child growing up. I had very um, supportive parents, loving family, big family outside my, you know, family of origin and I, from as early as I can remember, yeah, was, I fell in love with sport and in particular cricket and rugby league very early. And, you know, that those two sports were just major anchors for me and huge passions of mine, you know, all through my childhood. And I was very fortunate that it was, you know, that provided a great, that's very, I suppose it's very common or even cliche, but it was a great bonding um vehicle for my dad and I and uh so I remember you know he, he he would get home late from work quite often but he would sort of reserve time to bowl me a few balls in the backyard and um things like that and he you know he would teach me about cricket and uh and we he had lots of like cricket history books around so I'd I remember opening up like he had one book it's like this almanac of every test match that ever happened so I'll just I'll just leaf through it all the time and you know got to like it got to the point where like my dad actually started getting worried that all I did was consume cricket books or rugby league books. You know, it was, he wanted me to broaden my horizons in terms of my literacy or literature consumption. But that was kind of my, um, you know, sports writing or journalism was like my, um, my literary foundations, you know, I've lived in the cliches of rugby league and cricket, you know, my whole life. So um, yeah, you know, that was, I suppose from a sporting or TGC context, yeah, like, you know, sport is a huge part of my upbringing and was really supported to do it. I, and I just lived and breathed it. You know, I, um, I played cricket as much as I could. I had dreams to play for Australia and become as good as I could. Um, and by the same token, I also loved watching the game and consuming the game. I wasn't just a sort of a player. Um, I just, I, I wanted to know everything about it as much as I could. And in many ways, it's, you know, it's, it's been very foundational for me. So, yeah. 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 When I just heard you speak about your dad, it just made my heart warm because obviously, yeah, I, I hear about you talking about cricket, but to know that it was born from such a, like a, almost like a pure and just like very just easily attachable, like easy way to like emotionally invest way in terms of just a dad that was very supportive and really like kind of gave you the foundation to find a passion and then build upon it. So I loved it. I loved hearing about it. it was an interview. I think. Yeah, I, pre- 
I appreciate that, man. Um, um, sorry, I interrupted there, but no, no. like, uh, as I for a while there, I was like, oh, it's a bit one-dimensional to only like, you know, to have only sort of bonded over cricket or something like that. But actually, like, as I've become a parent, it's become clear to me that, you know, there's that there's nothing I would want more for for my kids. It doesn't matter what it is, but how important and great it would be, or it is for kids to have a passion for something. You know, for me, it was just cricket, but it could be anything you know for, for for any kid but it was i think it helped me a lot you know growing up to just have something that i just that i could get lost in or immersed in that wasn't drugs or alcohol yeah 100 <laughs> percent. so yeah yeah no no no. i completely agree me my dad was a massive cricket fan growing up and um yeah, yeah we've kind of re like me and him like on skype now talking about the england team and of course it's largely negative because as is my want as you would say but this idea of, yeah, there is something just really lovely to have that is an attachment with a parent, like a, a, a passion. And yeah, it can seem a little bit pigeonholing, but not really in the terms of, look, you've made a podcast on the idea of, which we will cover, but this podcast is like how cricket invades real life all the time. Like the principles, the the mentalities, the ethos is this idea of, yeah, you can put, you know you guys do it you can put anything in grade terms that idea of like you know so although it can seem that way i i am um, yeah having that passion that and something that is that allows you to immerse yourself like you said is just well yeah it's what you'd want for any you'd, i'd like to think any parent would want for their kids so and it does lead me to you've led me beautifully to the next question which is this idea of having that relationship with your dad and now you being a parent of two sons, two young, two young boys. How do you think your dad's relationship with yourself has impacted the way you've gone about parenting now with your two boys? Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's a, that, that's a very, that's a very big question because um, one thing that you be, well, that I have become much more aware of since becoming a parent is like, all of these questions about uh, all this awareness that I now have about what it must have been like to be parented, you know, as in what it must have been like for my parents with young kids, because when you're a kid growing up, it's just your life. You don't have any idea of the changes that have gone through your parents' lives or anything like that. And, uh, and so you, you encounter various challenges with your kids, like that are quite normal. Um, and some parents have it much more difficult than others, but whether it's around sleep or just getting used to the fact that your life isn't yours anymore and like managing that, um, inherent kind of selfishness that you have pre kids. And, and I mean that in a technical sense, I don't mean it in a judgmental way, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, is, um, is something that then wakes you up to the fact that your parents went through that, you know? And so and then you find you catch yourself saying or doing things or having mannerisms that your dad had or your mum had, you like, <laughs> or saying things to your kids that you know you haven't heard said to you for like twenty years. That all this stuff it's like deeply uh, rooted inside you. Um, it kind of it does wake up a whole new dimension, I think, of your relationship to your own parents. Um, how did my dad influence me? I don't know. We're actually it, it's funny you know talking about dad. Like we're we're quite. Um, different personalities in a lot of ways is a lot more um a lot more reserved and economic with his words than than me you know like yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm a bit more red-blooded hot hot you know, warm kind of um 
person. I get a lot of my energy from people. Uh, he's a lot more, is um, a person that probably values solitude, you know, a lot more than I. Uh, so we're different kind of styles. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I just try and take the things that I really appreciated from him, like whether it is bonding over cricket or the way you, you know, you speak or, or you know, lessons around patience, you know. Uh, so, I mean, that, but, but I'm, man, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an L plater, as I say here, like when it comes <laughs> to parenting, I mean, my, my eldest son is three, you know, I have a, I have a long way to go. Uh, I still feel quite new, still feels new to me. So I don't pretend to speak with any experience, like any great experience about it. Um, it's a, it's a journey that I'm still on. I want to do it as best as I can, but it's, um, it's an endless challenge. Yeah. 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 I mean, truer words could not have been spoken. And then, mm. yeah, to your point about, that inherent kind of selfishness i'm seeing it with friends of mine that are that are about to have kids try and like almost get all the water like all the juice out of the lemon in terms of like come uh, round yeah, let's, do like this, let's do this do this like this yeah, idea yeah. of uh, that like the, <laughs> the the knowledge that soon their life won't just be theirs as you said so i um yeah i completely understand that point and then yeah, yeah. i just yeah, look, me and my dad, although I didn't live with him from the age of two onwards, seeing myself become him as a human being can both be like an extent, like an existential, like worry, but also like, <laughs> also just curious about the world. I feel like this idea yeah. of proximity doesn't always dictate like human behavior in that sense or like, you know, the nature versus nurture argument totally yeah um totally yeah you, you've got a bit of code in there that uh you know genetically that would be developing regardless of where your dad was in the world even if and for some their dads mightn't even be around anymore and you like you still have that code inside you and people see you and go oh my god you're just like your old man you know and you're like is that good but yeah I yes guess. yeah i mean that's that question is that good is um yeah one that will plague the mind for many years i'd imagine but um for sure so you end up going to university of sydney and studying sociology and then also to study a master's in communications um telling you stuff that you already know but so how do you remember those years and what were some significant lessons that you took from your time as a university student both undergraduate and postgraduate that still apply into your life every day now not every day even but just life in general um oh university definitely changed me i mean um it's not a very like it's pretty you know it's pretty cliche like i had a a really i had a pretty privileged upbringing like i went to i went to a good school in sydney like dad had a good job and a lot of people you know um went to sydney university and i did it was an arts degree that i did so um um, sociology was my major and then government international relations was the other one and my first memory from uni is that like I, I mean I loved my my high school so much and I was so like I was so immersed in it and sheltered beyond what I even knew um, and I was young for my year as well so uh, when I went to university I was 17 and I I didn't even know how to enroll. Like I still remember the first time I went to university, I didn't even know what, I didn't know what a major was. I didn't know what, I didn't understand the language of subjects. I didn't like, and I actually didn't have any, um, uh, and a lot of people experience this in far more like 
I guess, acute ways than me, but there wasn't a lot of like family knowledge there as well in my family. Like yeah. uh, my sister had gone to uni, but like around how to do that. And in fact, so I, I didn't even manage to get myself enrolled the first time. And then I had to go back like a, a couple of days later with my sister yeah. who who's like five years older than me <laughs> to, to help me do it. Like that's how out of my depth I was. And what did I learn at uni? Well, the first thing I learned was that like, I thought uni would be easy and it wasn't. The subjects were really difficult. I felt quite stupid. Um, my marks weren't really that good, but eventually I stuck with it. You, you know, I wanted to stick with it. I wanted to make sure I finished and stuff. And, you know, I just event, like eventually come across subjects that really, you know, they just like it does in an arts degree, just opens your mind, you know. Before then, like pretty sort of average jock kind of sport guy. I didn't, you know, I was bright enough at school, but I didn't. Um, concern myself with academics that much but yeah you'd, you'd head into a sub like a, you know you'd go into philosophy subjects and they'd talk about god and i thought god was the um was the sort of the judeo-christian god but actually by god they meant um the omnipresent any omnipresent being you know yeah, and like yeah, oh, yeah. oh i was blown and like or you'd, you'd we talked about selfishness before i remember a tutorial about like um, are people inherently selfish? And you know, I'd been taught with my Anglican school that that was a that was a sin, you know. But actually, someone's explaining actually everything we do is selfish, even if it is sort of virtuous. And your head just goes, yeah. but it was great. And so things like that um, at the time were very, um, yeah, they were really they were they opened my mind, and I appreciate that. And um, I think that you know the cliche comment with the arts degrees it doesn't teach you what to think but kind of how to think a little bit and so I probably got schooled really well in uh, around you know concepts of like intellectual balance and stuff I, I didn't set the world on fire I wasn't ducks or anything like that and then yeah I wanted to do something vocational after that and uh, or something yeah that would have perhaps helped me get a job you know and um, I didn't know what I wanted to do and yeah I said you know yeah there's nothing inspirational about it I, I thought maybe I would do law or something and my dad, that's what my dad had done. And he said, no, don't do that. <laughs> so he said, you, um, he really warned against it, you know, and, and he said that he thought that I um, would be better. Uh, communications was the other one, you know, and yeah. uh, so, I, so I did that. And, um, yeah, I, and I found, I've always found the world of media and storytelling, one I've always been curious about and interested in. So uh, that's that's the path I took. Yeah, yeah, that's... Um... Oh, that's so that's so nice to hear, as silly as it sounds, because for you, obviously, you're like, well, that's just my experience. So you maybe don't have the detachment for it where I'm looking from the outside in. But the idea of like the biggest thing, one of the biggest things that you took from your time at university was like, like almost like profound learnings and evolution and all these different things is, um, yeah, really heartwarming because it's, you know, it's far more substantial than what I took from my my um my time at university which was you know uh, a damaged bladder yeah. and and just just like cra- crazy uh, mental health issues to figure out along the way so yeah i think right. to take that from your time at university is just for me anyway it's like really heartwarming i really i mean as you say that like I, there was other things from uni as well I, I became aware um that i you know was a very small fish in a big pond and that uh you know i i didn't have um, yeah, my old, my school that I'd been at, you know, for 11 years or whatever to hold my hand uh, that, you know, and and it was just, and look, it's Sydney University, it's sandstone, it's it's still attended by like just a lot of rich white people and international students mainly. So I'm not, you know, I'm not 
wasn't in Harlem, you know, or anything like that. But like, um, you still had to, you had to show a little bit more independence, I suppose, to um, navigate your way through. Uh, so all those things were helpful. It wasn't, uh, I, I, I didn't always, um, you know, enjoy it. And, and, and actually like it helped me, uni helped me realize that like I, I do get a lot of my energy from being in, being in teams and being uh, motivated by others rather than just purely by myself and so much so often at university in order to finish a subject or an assignment it's just you no one makes you do it you know the absent like for us we didn't have um like we had due dates but then it wasn't like you you could still submit late you could submit assignments late you'd lose two percent a day but i'd be like oh who cares i had no one you have no one on your back you know and so that was a thing for me at being you know trying to grow up and be an adult i was like oh you actually have to do it for yourself. You know, you don't do it because, and I think as, as a kid, it was more like I would often do things because I didn't want to get in trouble, but no one gets you in trouble at uni. You're just like, you either did it or you didn't. And if you're not doing well enough, see you later, you're not at uni anymore. Yeah. No one's going to actually give you a pep talk. So, I mean, you know, they were hard. They were like, for me, that was a, that was a, um, that was educational in its own way. I wish I had studied harder to be honest, because there's lots of subjects that now I look back and I'm more mature. They were really enriching subjects, but I was, probably not, you know, at, at the place in my life where I was like, I really want to, um, you know, learn about the Renaissance and Reformation, you know? Yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Honestly, that was, yeah, exactly. Like you said, with like no pressure, it's like, I'd be like, you know, 10 PM submission date and be at like nine 30 with a mate of mine in my house being like, dude, we're going out in like an hour. So like figure this shit out and then we can go out. So, this idea yeah. of like them just giving me a bottle of rum like on my desk while I'm trying to finish an essay and then being <laughs> like, oh, fuck, here we go. Let's figure this out and get this yeah. done. So, yeah, I, um, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, there's just something about that which I, uh, yeah, completely relate to in that sense. Um, but you've mentioned university, although, you know, predominantly rich white people, rich white people, you managed to figure out a way of volunteering in a capacity with an organization called AIM. And for those of you that mm. don't know AIM, it's the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. So you were associated with them, pri- as I understand it, initially as a volunteer, but also in a kind of working capacity down the line, but on and off for years. So I saw you in a TED talk, a young, a young pairs on stage, um, and I really enjoyed it. You talking about giving Indigenous kids opportunities for mentoring and guidance. So I was wondering if you can speak about the time that you were working with AIM and the values and the value that came alongside with working with a company that it does have such a tangible almost purpose that what mm-hmm. they're trying to do is very tangible. It's very, it is very virtuous, like in my opinion anyway. So how did you find that experience working with AIM? And can you speak to the value of working with a company that is so aligned with a purpose that is perceived or in reality virtuous like that? For sure. Um, yeah, or well, you've done your research. Uh, and <laughs> so AIM, as you said, Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. So there's a connection to cricket there for me. So AIM was founded by... Um, a guy called Jack Manning Bancroft, who I played um, like junior rep cricket with. Uh And uh, he is an Indigenous man who um, was on a scholarship at Sydney University 
and um, I'm going. I'm, I'm reaching back into the memory for this, but it's still kind of clear as day. Really, like um, part of the scholarship that he attained to go to Sydney University, um, essentially, you know, g- gifted him an amount of money to utilize, um, you know, for good. And he decided he he recognised that Sydney University. So um, for those who are listening, probably not aware of the geography of it, but Sydney University is in um, a suburb called Camperdown in inner Sydney. Um, and it really is, a, it's probably a 10 minute walk from the most famous um, residential area of Aboriginal community, which is Redfern uh, in Sydney. And Redfern is known for the block, which is again, is a symbol of the symbol of Aboriginal, um, Aboriginal collective or Aboriginal community. It's, all, it's, it's also, you know, for various media depictions in Australia, um, the block is a, um, is a symbol of, of, of violence and dysfunction as well. Uh, and, and so the idea that you could have these sandstone walls, you know, um, that, a lot of Aboriginal kids would not even know existed or wouldn't be able to walk into or whatever, 10 minutes away from a place like the block where you've got high schools like Alexandria Park. That that inspired Jack to create um, this this organisation called AIM, which, you know, in its origins, the basic idea was that um, you would have 25 university mentors, 25 um, high school mentees, and you would pair them up one or you would match them up one-on-one um, in a relationship uh, to explore um, you know, on a weekly basis, uh, all, all together in a collective to explore, um, you know, important topics for those kids. And it would work, it would work for both parties, you know, for, for a mentor like me who had barely had any um, in, engagement or experience with Aboriginal people, it, it gave you an opportunity to connect and to learn. And then for, the, for a lot of those kids as well, it was the opportunity to walk through the university gates and have a have a world open to them that's on their doorstep, a world open to them that's quite systemically is is often not. So um, that volunteering experience then turned into a professional experience. And and how is that for me? I mean, it was very special and very formative for me. Like um, I learned a lot from Jack, who's a you know very um, very driven entrepreneur, and uh, you know through his leadership, the organisation grew immensely the um the interest in the program was such that it became national i was um heavily part of that uh and um it so, so for me it was um really enriching you know i've got a lot of I've made a lot of indigenous friends i learned a lot about the country in indigenous australia uh the opportunity to um work in a kind of entrepreneurial spirit to get the program out there is something that i um that still holds me in good stead today it, yeah it's it's something i'll you know something very special to me that i remember forever it's a, you know that the original idea with aim is very i think is a, is a quite a genius idea that you know i still believe in so um yeah you, you know and, and yeah like i said i learned a lot from jack i learned a lot from a lot of the other people that i worked with there as well yeah it's um so for me, right? I, it's been a while since I've done the aims, the, the aims spiel, mate. To be honest, yeah. I've, I've been like, uh, uh, the, the, the TED talk will be cleaner than that. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. First of all, it was fantastic. Like, yeah, I um, I really enjoyed it, legitimately. So, yeah. So for me, right, I momentarily detached from what you said, which was absolutely fantastic. This sure. idea, right? So, I get introduced to you, and here goes through a cricket podcast that I find hilarious. You're both the chemistry's fantastic. And in tu- there's something in tune, right? I have this podcast, so the purpose of this podcast is to share stories of people doing positive with their platform, whatever that may look like. So with that intention, I'm always looking subconsciously more than anything. But for people that have had a positive impact or just good-hearted people, all these different just 
kind of untangible traits and all these different things. Mm. So when I looked into the idea of like, oh, I wonder like if that would work with Pez. So naturally I get drawn to the idea of asking you for the podcast. You're very gracious. We figure it out and it's now happening. But there was something very in tune with me that I was like, yes, the podcast is funny, but there's something about the human being that I'm unconsciously drawn to. And it would be the same with you and here goes. But so when I start doing this research and learn about AIM, for me, it's like a light bulb. I'm like, ah, ding, 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 like a little bit, potentially confirmation bias, but there's a confirmation of like, oh no, there is something about this human being that I'm very drawn to without me even knowing in that sense. But so to hear you speak about it now, to hear about you speaking it then was something that it immediately aligned with my values. So in that sense, it's learning about it was just in really enriching on my side. So I can only imagine how enriching it was for you but as we stand now in this year as you and here goes have joked about people calling you blm tossers and the conversation Hmm. about race is like far more common globally so not only are you and here goes discussing it now where you've discussed it with past aussie fans with the aussie india series and you guys covered it in a way that i really enjoyed but the idea of how did you find addressing themes of racism and all these different things back then even though that you guys are doing it now, but this idea of how did you find addressing themes of racism and lack of representation mm. and lack of accessibility to mentors and guidance back then? Mm. Uh, well, first thing was that um, AIM was an, and is an, an Indigenous organisation with um, an Indigenous CEO, majority Indigenous staff, um, majority Indigenous board. And so as a non-Indigenous person, uh, the, the, first, the first thing is that, you know, you, uh, you need to listen, <laughs> you know, and um, the, the, the abiding memory I have of AIM's approach to like racial inequality um, was that it was not rooted in, um, in victimhood, like it was not rooted in um, highlighting errors people had made. Um, it was almost entirely focused on um, creating like o- opportunity and enrichment of like Indigenous high school students through, you know, engaging in important issues and themes like, um, you know, identity, for example. Um educational attainment, things like that. Um, I can't actually remember the things we do week to week that much. I used to be able to know it off the top of my head, but what I do remember about the philosophy towards it was that it, it was never it was it was never rooted in um, a, a, a dry intellectual back and forth. Um, the the notion that the term woke didn't exist to my knowledge, you know, when I was at AIM 2009 to 2014 or 15 uh it was you know we were young and we were driven and we um wanted to try and as best we can um crash through a lot of the like really sapping rhetoric or culture war that we see now around 
the validity of race, uh, race issues or critical race theory or the sort of shit that we'll talk about now. Yeah. It really, I mean, the thing Jack used to say was that, you know, Amy's action, uh, it was, and that, that's, and that, you know, paradoxically, they were their words yeah. <laughs> to saying that, but that's really what it was, you know, and the best way you can show that is not through the things you say, but what you do. I mean, there was a very hard, fast KPIs or, or, or key indicators like mm-hmm. of, success at AIM because it wasn't government funded. It was funded by um, um, partners, benefactors, philanthropists, uh, et cetera. And really the success was the educational attainment of Aboriginal high school kids um, who were in the program versus those who were not. So you could see that they were progressing through year nine and 10 at a higher rate. Mm-hmm. And then marking those kids again, not marking, but then testing those kids against non-Indigenous high school kids and their rates of attainment, their um, graduation from high school and then to university. So they're not things you can fake. And mm. you would you would have those numbers, you would have those attainment rates audited independently. So you could you could see that there was a social return on investment. You know, mm. so you can't just chat about it and say this is a good, this is a happy clappy program. Let's say all the right things that preach to the choir. There were actually things that we were doing that were demonstrating that kids were doing better at school. They were gaining that education that, you know, Michael Holding talks about now um, to empower them to succeed in a, in a complex world, you know? So I've got a lot of, you know, that that's, I've eventually got there explaining it to you. Um, There was, there was a, there was a positive force for that underpinned it, but really it was the action that, um, that was the evidence of its meaning and success. Yeah. Yeah, and it probably makes it all more rewarding, this idea of having tangible results, right? It's like it helps limit the idea of people being a part of the program and going, well, are we even fucking achieving anything? It's this idea totally. of having those major programs points. out there are like that. Yeah. 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 Oh, no, no, no. I... Like that. Go on. All I was going to say is you're completely right. That idea of it then puts the volunteer when you were volunteering this idea of i don't even know if i'm really making an impact or a difference it's like having those hard facts and the hard measuring points for success it probably it leads to even the men the mentor being a part of a more enriching process in that sense because you're seeing the results rather than like you said there's organizations that are claiming they're doing things and it's you never really see the actual proof in the pudding i guess for sure. And, you know, I can't, like that's before you get to a lot of the intangible um, benefits of it as well. I mean, for a mentor, um, there's just so much, you know, often a university student with no experience with Aboriginal people or whatever, they come from a different background. Um, the opportunity to engage, be around other Indigenous people, learn things about Indigenous Australia in a very accessible environment. It's not, you know, full of group thinking people of a particular style of politics or anything like that. Um, you know, I don't know how that turns up in an annual report. It probably can't. But I guess the the fact that you used to have lines around snaking around buildings to take part in the training to be a mentor, it, it kind of used to develop its own kind of vibe around it at university. It was a it was a good thing to do. Um, it was a good way to to um, enrich your time at university. Uh, and then, but there are there probably were kids in the program as well that might not have achieved it and you know higher educational attainment. But they may have come across, um, you know, certain experiences or um, certain, you know, ways of thinking about their identity or pride in who they were or their family or their people um, that um, might might have 
made a difference down the track. It's that, that part of it's probably not really for me to say, but, you know, if you put enough inspirational people and you have enough guardrails there going in the right direction, then there, there was a lot of excellence, I think, that um, that came out of AIM. Uh, and I can only speak for the time that I was there, you know. So, um, but it, it's, it's difficult for not-for-profits as well. There are a lot of programs out there that are beset by particular issues. There's a lot of people who create their own program because they, they need... Um, a certain personal cachet that then hoards resources from other programs that might need it. Uh, and then everyone's cannibalizing each other a little bit. It's a, yeah. it's a complex area a little bit. Yeah. Look, preaching to a choir. Sorry, man. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, no. Preaching to a choir. Just could not, yeah. Couldn't yeah. agree anymore. Um, and one thing that I believe I'm right in saying once again, please dispel it if it's not right. Um, that you took your work with aim from Sydney to Melbourne, how did you... And the funny thing about this is, right, so this is the most London mentality slash just ignorant mentality ever, right? I've got no idea prior to looking into this, the distance between Sydney and Melbourne. So I've got no idea. In my head, that could be London to Birmingham. And then, like, in my head, mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, it is a big cultural shift, but it ain't that far. Obviously, I found out the hard way. It's like 800 miles. It's absolutely, like, I can only imagine just, like, the it's the reality of like how big Australia was hit me whilst doing this prep. So show, <laughs> shows you just how ignorant I am on that front anyway. So how did you find that? Cause that is a big transition and it, it may leak into this. This is once again, an assumption, but is this around the time that you meet your now wife, Tori? And what were your first impressions of meeting her and learning about her whilst going through something that is quite enriching and potentially hmm. like, I don't know, just perception changing of the world, I guess. Oh, there's three huge questions you've asked me there. Firstly, yeah. Sydney, Melbourne stuff, and then aim into Melbourne and then Torrey. Well, Sydney, Melbourne, it's a mentality thing. It is. It's about a thousand kilometres, but yeah. it is kind of like London to Birmingham in terms of your mentality in the context of Australia. Yeah. It's the most travelled route by um by plane, I think, in the world, uh, like in terms of city to city, which you wouldn't think given how small Australia is. But um, so it's quite, in terms of business and travel and stuff, people go from Sydney to Melbourne quite a lot and they commute. But um, yeah, it's a really long way. And they are culturally quite different cities once you move. (laughs) Um, So I'll I'll go Tori first. So Tori, um, no, Tori not. Tori's from Melbourne originally. She was born and bred in Melbourne and I'm born and bred in Sydney. And um, she, it was quite romantic thinking back on it. She, um, she's a total, like, she's a total brain. She's very, very bright. And she, um, she studied, to, she, she sort of did this GAMSAT test, which is the test you take to see if you can get into medicine. And she obviously, she got great marks and had a choice of universities and like the university of melbourne is the big university here in melbourne mm. her parents are from melbourne they expected that she would accept the melbourne uni offer and she also had an offer from sydney university and I, she didn't i don't even know if she still told her parents but we just started dating and so she just took this massive gamble and said i'll go i'll go to sydney university because wow. sam's there so um and that was you know age 21 or something like that 22. Yeah. And um, so actually Tori was in Sydney for about five years. And then once she finished her degree, that was when she's like, I'd like to move back to Melbourne now. And I thought, well, that's fair enough. Uh, And um, I'll, you know, I, I put it to Jack at AIM that, that I moved down to Melbourne with my job and he said yes. And uh, 
And then that precipitated that. So yeah, love, love took me down to Melbourne and then uh, AIM helped facilitate it. And that was fantastic because yeah, taking AIM from Sydney to Melbourne or growing AIM into Melbourne, that was really difficult. And that was very formative again, professionally, because it was a completely different uh, environment down here. I completely, you know, I cringe thinking about some of the attitudes that I took down to Melbourne, you know, as a, as a white guy from Sydney and the assumptions that I made, but I learned, I learned so much. I was humbled in a lot of ways. And, but we had a really small team down here. We're all still amazing friends because we worked very, very hard and we managed to establish a program down here at um, Monash Uni and RMIT. And one of the guys is, he was a groomsman at my wedding, Jerome Cabilla. Shout out. He's a, He's a traditional owner up in Darwin, the, the famous Cabillo family. He was also on the Amazing Race last year with his uh, with his uh, with his partner. Anyway, um, <laughs> and um, so yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. You know, because because down here is it's a much different community down here, and like and with with respect, you know, we came down um, uppity, you know, Sydney types thinking we're well, we can take our franchise model and just drop it where everyone around the country. And we got slapped around a bit, you know, to, uh, and rightly so. Like, um, and, uh, but, but they did support us, you know, in the end. And um, that was a great experience. So uh, yeah, that was, that was how I got to Melbourne and what started happening when I, when I got here. I love it. Uh, yeah. First of all, I have just given you three wildly huge questions and you've That's masterfully good. worked your way through them. Um <laughs> And yeah, just, oh, I love that story of love because, so we've joked about the idea of like you, which Pez do you want? Like the real Sam Perry or the like TGC (laughs) one. And of course in my head, I was like, yeah, I could just ask you a bunch of cricket questions and we could do that. But this idea of like presenting the actual Sam Perry is, um, and learning about the actual Sam Perry is something that was like important to me anyway, on my side. So yeah, hearing that's, I loved it. That was great. <laughs> um, and, you know, I say all of that beautiful things just to bring you straight back to TGC. So 2016 rolls around and a quote that you and Ian use consistently, which is there was a bit going on by the sounds of things of the year of 2016. So you, Ian and Dave at the time are not to people's knowledge are behind the grade cricket Twitter account funny account really like yeah looking back i was like okay this is brilliant looking back and not knowing like imagining people not knowing it was you three but you then decide after being anonymous to out yourself i hate the way i've used that way but make yourself public um and that's with the idea of releasing the great cricketer book so i've got a couple of questions i think i'll ask the serious one and the silly one. So the serious one is mm. how did you find the process of writing the book or just becoming an author in that sense? And the silly question is, did you ever have any funny interactions with friends of yours that didn't know that you were behind the TGC account would send mm. you a tweet and go, mate, this is fucking hilarious. And it's actually a tweet that <laughs> either you or here goes or Dave has actually yeah. posted and you're like, yeah, these blokes are really funny to be fair. Um, and did you have any kind of, yeah, just funny interactions in that sense whilst it was anonymous. Mm. Um, well, to the serious question, I suppose that the, the way that we got to the book was in 2012, um, I was working a decidedly different job to 
to aim, um, which I did return to briefly. But um, uh, I was at I was at Telstra, which is a big telco here in Australia, working in corporate affairs. And uh, yeah, twenty twelve, I, I what happened? I was I'd just been overseas. I hadn't started Telstra yet, but like I'd just been overseas in the US. I came back, and it was going to be my first year of not playing grade cricket. And I don't know why, but I just sort of had this um article idea you know inside me for for a, a blog and i just wrote about um how to make it in grade cricket and it was just that was the sort of the um embryonic idea of the great cricketer and it got it kind of went viral so um didn't put anything behind it just it got picked up and people got in touch like like gideon Hague and justin langer saying they really liked it and i was like oh, this is great so then i just started in late tw- october 2012 i just made this yeah like I think fake accounts were sort of in at the time, you know, so the grade cricketer. So I did it for about a year um, solo and then just I wanted to share it uh, to, like, get more content going, really, and uh, I think, and it's more fun, you know, doing it with friends. So, yeah, Dave asked Dave and he goes, I asked a few others, actually, if they wanted to do it, but only Dave and he goes did. Um, Those guys made a mistake, the other people. But anyway, um, yeah. Maybe not, maybe not, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah. So then we, we would just do tweets for a couple of years and um, yeah, we just want, we'd like to expand. We'd like to explore the character more, you know, I think we're even just creatively, we just like, this could be much more fun. We just, we just had a lot of fun writing the tweets and getting the reactions, you know, because it just felt like we were onto something around thoughts of cricketers dark thoughts of cricketers that hadn't really felt like they'd aired before, you know, in an internet age. And so a book was going to, we, we always felt we were good enough to do a book and yeah. in terms of how we'd put it together, it was very simple. You know, we, I was in, Dave and I were in Melbourne, Ian was in Sydney. We would catch up on Skype weekly. We would plot out the story together, just improvise it. And then, um, and then divide up the chapters according to who wants to write what. And then he goes and come down to Melbourne a couple of times we'd go and get a case of beer, sit at a grade cricket match and um, and just talk about each player out on the ground and who they were and just build out their character and, and just come up with storylines that amused us and um, and put them into the book, really. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Uh, and then there was, yeah, there was a silly one. Um, um, I do, yeah, there, there was, I can't really remember specifically whether things would come back to me, but, yeah, there was a long period where it was like, it would you would hear people say, Oh, who is that? Or do you know who this is? Or is that Kerry O'Keefe? Or oh, I heard it was this guy and just wouldn't say anything. And that was very satisfying, but also very excruciating, you know, at the yeah. same time. Yeah, look, yeah. look, look down your phone, you're about to post on the grey cricket and have to check your shoulders and make sure no one's looking. <laughs> <laughs> Not quiet, yeah. Maybe if we, yeah. I would probably have the arrogance to, to think like that, actually. But, uh, but no one, it wasn't at that level, but yeah. No, I did. Um... I was explaining it to a mate of mine when we were watching England the other day. I was like, I said to him, I was like, it's just the equivalent of like a Sunday league footballer, like all the shit. And, and we were saying, you know, imagine Southgate now when he's against Scotland saying like, come on boys, just push up, trap him in on the throw-ins, like yeah, all these, yeah, all these yeah, different yeah. things. And he, um, yeah. so he immediately Away. understood it. <laughs> but, um, I said, that's probably the shit half of these professional footballers are putting up with, which is, the exact mentality that you and Higgos have kind of spoken about on, on the great cricketer. But, um, and I want to give you this opportunity to speak. Can you speak to the mentality and the persona of a great cricketer for those of the listeners who may not be aware of the rare unit that is the great cricketer? 
um, (laughs) for those who may not be aware, well, I think to explain this character or the, um, the environment you create to discuss that mentality, you have to understand the, the context it takes place in. So, so grade cricket sits in classic terms within a pyramid of Australian cricket and the pyramid being that you have lower level amateur park cricket, shit cricket, (laughs) but we call it shit (laughs) that, you know, very bad people, bad exponents play for enjoyment. And then you have grade cricket, the level above that. And then the level above that is state cricket where you represent your state. And then the level above that is the Australian team. And so grade cricketers will always believe that there are only a few good games away from making the state team and then making the Australian team. So they always like to feel like they're in proximity of good players. And given that the, the truth is that you spend enough, you spend almost part-time work hours playing grade cricket, yep. you actually pay to play. Um, you end up deluding yourself around why you're playing. Um, and so many guys are in the competition playing because that's all they've ever known and they have a deep-seated fear of change. You know, that's what we say. <laughs> and so the, the whole environment gives rise to a certain um, air of, like, um, you know, deceit of yourself, of others, of toxicity towards yourself and others um, because you are partaking in this activity that is completely um, incongruous to what everyone is doing in life, you know. You're spending your time failing, you are not going to achieve your dreams, you haven't let go of those dreams, and then you put enough blokes in that cesspool, uh, you, you're going to have some pretty interesting sociological experiences. So that's what gives rise to all those, you know, characters like the Red Unit and the Chop King and the, the Alpha and all of that. But that, that. And that was our experience of it, you know, and we just felt like, you know, I just felt like from the start, you know, those that environment needed uh, some airtime. So. Yeah, and I just... It's so for anybody that's listening and is an English like it is literally Sunday league football, but like a, I guess I was playing. Look, the 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 system in here is, yeah, I guess it would be like Sunday league football to a cad like semi pro football to reserve football to like Premier League. So yeah, I guess there's this idea of like if you play a good Sunday league team. There's a bit like, oh, yeah, if I um, have a good game here and look pretty decent, you mm. never know who's watching, especially when you're well, younger. Well, in, in grade cricket, like you, if you play first grade cricket, you would regularly play against guys who are on TV. Like I did that. And 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 so you would go, well, I, I'm so I, I'm playing against professionals. I have to compete against them. And yet the gap between both of you was just enormous. Yeah. Um, but it could it just fucked with your head. Yeah. You know, sorry, I'm not sure if I can swear on yes, this. Yeah, but yeah, like, please do. Please um, do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, and then that would be the same all the all the grades down. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure the levels we're kind of talking about there, but any grade cricketer worked there, so it would bristle at the idea that you know they're anything but like just off professional level. Oh yeah, I'm pretty much semi-pro or whatever. But it's like, when you look at that, you're like, I spend 24 hours playing this game. I probably pay about $6,000 a year to play after petrol and kit or whatever. I, I play third grade. So there's about 3,000 people ahead of me before state cricket, but I'm only two knocks away from it. And, you know, just that entire, um, it, 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 it's a real, it's a real mind fuck really. And that's what creates a lot of the comedy. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, um, yeah, the parallels to football here is it's it mm. gives me that easy attachment straight away, but also just 
yeah, it's just hilarious. I just love it so mm. much. But yeah, I did want you to explain. And, and a lot, in the past, a lot of like uh, international players, they had to play grade cricket. Like it's yeah. all changed a little bit now, but you actually had to go through the system. So everyone, um, and that's why I think we get a lot of interviews as well, is because a lot, especially with the Aussie guys, because they, they want to demonstrate their, um, you know, th- their connection to the level as well. Like, oh yeah, we went through that too, you know. Yeah. Um, it's like, mate, you've just got big hands and you're massive. That's why you made it to the top. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh. Um, so yeah. Oh yeah. No, I've, I've, yeah, I've probably played Sunday league football against some guys that have gone pro, especially young. Yeah. When you're like younger and doing it, like, yeah, playing against people to end up going pro and being like, well, yeah, I, you know, I got the better of him once or twice when we were younger. Like that sort of like, exactly. Real, real yeah. like, just insecure like side mouth shit. It's just. Yes, yeah. the parallels are just uncanny. But um, <laughs> um, and then in 2016, I believe you got married as well. So I wanna, mm. I wanna provide the opportunity slash give, yeah, people to hear the idea of Pez the husband. Like, how have you found the past five years of marriage with nearly two of them? Well, 18 months during a pandemic and with two young children. Oh, um. Um, Tori and I were to, together for 10 years before we got married. We, we, we got together very young. And, like, the truth is that, like, as I, I, I like a circuit as much as the next guy, you know. Like, and uh, But, like, I really am um, – I really am deep down. Like, it was probably quite obvious on the surface. Like, you know, not very cool. I, I, I like – we're both, like, nonners, you know. Like, I, I really – I knew when we met that um, it was a great relationship. It doesn't mean it doesn't – have to be worked on all the time but like um getting married was like the um it was like a completion of something that i think we both knew was going to happen for quite a while and and so so much i mean it was the wedding was great and and all of that and it is it's important to do but like um it uh you know tori in many ways doesn't like the wedding date being the anniversary date because it feels she feels like you have to give up the previous 10 years you know what i mean so like we almost don't even remember our like wedding date i don't know if that's good or bad like we celebrate the other anniversary so we can get the fullness of the statistic you know um but um um we got married 2016 and then um yeah and then well yeah being a parent during a pandemic and stuff i don't know i mean i think with it like to be honest you know with it, well, it was a two two year old, you know, at the time, and then it, then the second one came along, Barney, um, last year. Like we were pretty locked down anyway, you know. I mean, that like we've moved into a house last year, and I see a lot of parents with kids who are um, at school and stuff. And I think because we're in Melbourne, which had a pretty hard lockdown for a long time, like th- those parents are significantly impacted, you know, trying to work and then homeschool your kids and work from home, homeschool your kids. I mean, for us, it was like we actually materially weren't that impacted from on that, from that standpoint. So like um, it's really the, the, issue, the, the question for us has been more just the challenges of parenting generally. Oh, I think we've been lucky in terms of the timing of the pandemic from us, from our standpoint. So no real complaints there, but um, that's, you know, I, I don't really know how deep to go into that. Like, it's just a, it's a, I'm really like, we love our boys it's great it's a challenge you know like one of them doesn't sleep very well oh well that's what happens you know yeah i Mm. um yeah i mean you're probably speaking to like every single parent i guess in that sense the idea of yeah look comes with its challenges we love we love them even through that and then 
yeah, you make the best with the, you make the best with what you have and what you can. I guess I'd imagine um, speaking mm. to someone that could not be further away from that particular part in my own life, I kind of have to work off wild assumptions and anecdotal stories. I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose the main thing I would say is that like they're both they're both healthy, you know, and um, and are so we have challenges that that many other parents would have that we hope are phases around, you know, sleep and stuff like that. But otherwise, I think we've been, um, you know, very, very blessed, uh, blessed, very lucky, you know, to um, so far in our journey, you know, and take that. Uh, very grateful for that. You know, having kids freaks you out about, you know, this, how high the stakes become, you know, so I, like touch wood, we're all good. Um, but I, I think a lot of other parents would find, would, find life very difficult with with kids that have you know bigger challenges or they have bigger challenges or those that you know they might have struggled through the pandemic or whatever but we've been okay you know uh, so far so um just want to keep that going so i'm trying not to sound like i'm in the mixed zone after a uh, euros match or something yeah. giving a bad bad answer to it yeah yeah, yeah. Know, but this is how it is you know yeah the gaffer just said you know focus on the game so <laughs> full credit to my three-year-old you know yeah, yeah 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 he just told me you know make sure that you you know you're courageous in your passing but you don't lose possessions so exactly. <laughs> um and i've said this to you already but this idea of you and here goes the way that you go about interviewing guests with tgc is something that i've really learned from slash just appreciated in general i think you know you're speaking to you're speaking to you caught like the idea of white whales like you guys are you've ticked off a few like and i put that very lightly like you've spoken to some very influential people in australian cricket in indian cricket you've spoken to just big people in general but one thing that is very consistent is that you guys are going to be presented as calm composed loose having fun like making sure that there's still comedy in the way that you deliver questions and it becomes really disarming. So then when I listen to like the Shubman Gill interview that you guys did, you guys present him as this really likable guy. And then in my head, I'm like, I've had to watch this guy, like just tear England apart in India with him and Rohit at the top of the order. It makes it hard to like, just not resent the bloke for absolutely just make mm. put me through a month and a half of like just agony of pain of, as an England fan, because <laughs> as you know, as a fan, like they're doing it to you personally. It's not, you're not playing, but <laughs> they are doing it to you personally somehow. But, and I think it's just, it's a very unique trait. I think in podcasting, I like the way that you guys go about it with comedy and yeah, you just, you manage to disarm these like professional athletes that most part have been media trained in some sense. And you guys work out <laughs> ways to disarm them and, yeah, just make really humanize them. So, you know, you've had a podcast for a long time prior to YouTube. I found you through YouTube, but I know that the journey starts mm. longer, long before that. Mm. How have you found, how has that process developed for you as an interviewer, this idea of being more comfortable with who you are and being able to disarm a guest the way that you guys do and make it just fun, make it fun, mm. enjoyable. It ends up leading to a, much more rewarding conversation for the listener and i'd imagine for you as the host but how have you found mm. that process as a podcaster over the years as it's gone gone through um 
oh well thank you for saying all of those things that's very kind uh and um sorry i was just gonna say something really sarcastic because i'm a bloke and i have to uh just then um just no, kill anything no, um, no, serious no, i've just said so no no, no. um <laughs> Um, oh, he could have gone further, really. But anyway, um, <laughs> but um, no, I don't mean that. Uh, well, I think the first thing, mate, is um, like I've always. I, I think you have to like. I think you have to start with, well, in terms of like how how I look at it, anyway. And I think there's oh, I've got so much to improve on in my own interviewing. Like there are people who are amazing, you know. Um, so. I don't think uh, we're like, you know, particularly good or anything. I think we have a style. Uh, sometimes it goes really well. Sometimes it's a bit more of a struggle, but like in terms of how I look at it um, for what it's worth, like I think the thing I start with is that um, interviewing is a, is a skill that requires like um, a lot of thought. It's not like it's, it may manifest as just a conversation but for the interviewer, uh, as you've done, like, to, like tonight, my time, um, like that you, you've got to be prepared. You've got to like, you've got to do your homework. Um, it's just like I've done like hundreds of interviews now and like I can say that there have been, I'm very like I'm proud of standards I've set myself around preparation for interviews and stuff, but there have been occasions when, I'd say, I wouldn't say I've dialed it in, but there've been occasions where I've probably written down my questions, maybe 10 to 15 minutes beforehand. Uh, maybe I don't write out in the, write out the question in the perfect prose or get the, get the punchline in the right place. I might just do a subheading or something. And I just find every time I spend time preparing for an interview, a question will come to me or something will come off the back of research that I've done that just enriches the interview so much more than if I just came up with the ideas 10 minutes beforehand. So that process is just always really rewarding to like give yourself the time to prepare because you just don't know what comes into your head that what it does is when, when you spend a bit of time preparing, firstly, you learn things about the person that then spawns a question that you can ask yourself, you can think to yourself, they mightn't have got that question before. So they'll be excited by that question because so many of these guys you're talking to have had all the same questions before. So the first thing is like, try and try and be original, you know, try and give them an experience that they go, that was fun. They're going to be safe. That was fun. Secondly, although you have the tyranny of the blank page, when you're starting to prepare, like once you give yourself the time and you come up with a set of questions that you like, you then, take that energy into the interview you go i i am looking forward to asking these questions because i've put time into it i'm prepared like and i i actually want to know what they say about this you know so like you go and interview Mornay morkel i could have as a thing sandpaper and then it's my turn to ask a question and i just blurt something out and he gives a standard answer you know or i might have just sent off a text to like steve o'keefe who plays with him at manly you know, and he, he writes something back and you go, oh, there's a little yarn and it might get that sleeping story out of him. You know what I mean? Like, and, yeah. um, or they'll give you something. So quite often just putting in the pre you, preparation doesn't guarantee a great interview, but it gives you the best chance for one, you know, and um, or, for, or for, for some gold. Um, what else? I think the other thing is for us, like being aware of the, of the broader like the broader ecosystem of cricket shows that are out there and things 
that cricket players or cricket identities um, are involved in. So if I can be aware of other podcasts that exist or other interviews that guys do and the sorts of questions they can get, I can then know what kind of niche we're trying to carve out, you know? So how can we make that different? What sort of vibe can we bring that makes it different? What style of question can we bring that makes a, a guest smile as you're asking the question, you know? And how can I, yeah, differentiate it? And the great and great cricket just gives us a um, just a an enduringly beautiful prism through which to have permission to ask stupid questions on the surface that actually have a little bit of meaning behind it, and that's when you can often get a little bit of gold, or you can um, you can I guess can be in a certain frame of mind, and then you can go bang and hit them with something quite serious and. There's your front page. No. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of spitballing to you there, but that's that's some of my random thoughts about it. No, I'm um, I'm not just saying this. That actually might be one of my favourite answers to any question I've had in a very long mm. time. That's, mm. for those that obviously are listening and they're not watching, obviously, mm. um, <laughs> I'm literally like a bulldog, like the Churchill bulldog, just like, <laughs> like nodding up and down and just like the cheshire grin of just like because it's exactly how i've done my best to approach podcasting like you said the idea of prep being important because yeah i can ask you know i can ask you a question about becoming an author but i can also ask the question of allowing my mind to be intrigued and going oh actually i wonder what it was like getting asked you know about the account when it was anonymous and all exactly. these different things so and you know, if I went into this podcast, we could have talked about TGC the whole time, really. Like, mm. it would have been easy to do that. So, yeah, that idea is um, the idea of the prep, what it leads to, the general intrigue that gives you the internal passion and internal, like, desire to actually ask the question and actually be intrigued by the answer is, yeah, I'm not just saying it as, like, hyperbole. That's legitimately one of my favourite answers of a question i've had in a long time so i have mm. to thank you for that oh, very much so oh thanks man i mean i, I you know i like and li listeners would um pick this up by now like if i have a second or third go of saying it i could probably say it a lot more concisely but i just think what sits underneath it is probably just empathy for the interviewee you know if you really can if you can try your best to get in their shoes around what their experiences of interviews normally are and um, for us, we really are, are trying to imbue on the guests that it, a, a good interview is one where they enjoy it and that they walk away from it um, um, feeling like they've had a good time and that people know them a little bit better. Then, um, then and, and then you can gear your questions um, and your approach to it with that in mind. Then um, usually it holds you in pretty, pretty good stead. Uh, but, yeah, I like... It's like so many people, whether they interview or not, like anything in life, you know, what how it manifests might seem really simple and breezy, but there's often a lot that goes in underneath to make it look like that. I'm not saying we've always done that, by the way. Like, but but the good one, the good ones where you're proud of it, I think that's usually the the principle, like the principle that sits behind it. Completely agree. Um, I do. Oh, I hate that this instinct's come to me. So let me try and rephrase it. But that's all right. The, because the instinct, the immediate question is, what's a interview that stands out that you really enjoy? But the grand scheme of things, you've put in hard work into a lot of them. They all have different, you know, just they give you different feelings. Like for me anyway, like I, I, I hate when I get that question, like, 
what's your favorite podcast guest that you've had? It's like <laughs> you're immediately like dismissing every other one that you don't say. So yeah, 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 yeah. What's an interview that you guys had that maybe surprised you positively? This idea of we went into it and we weren't sure. You just don't know because mm. you know you guys are talking to you've spoken to someone like Curly Ambrose, which is like a real legend mm. of cricket, and it's like although you you can gauge the personality through other things, you've got there's an element of like you know the rapport levels of difference between guests. So is there an interview that sticks out in your mind where you go? Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how this will go, and it ends up being one where you're like, "Oh God, that went far better than I even had the perception of what it could be." Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, you, you can see me scrolling my phone now because yeah, I'm just yeah. looking through our interviews for yeah, for yeah. memories of it. Um, like relatively recently, he goes and I um, interviewed Greg Chapel. Uh, yeah. who like for, for background like I mean Greg Chappell was a legend of Australian cricket as a batsman and a captain I uh one thing I missed out talking about the interview was like I, I booked them uh as well so like go, like the, the chase for an interview is often very arduous but like it's very satisfying and I, I just feel like that little, bringing that little edge to the show is is a satisfying thing yeah. um for us and you can often establish a rapport with somebody even in the way that you pursue an interview in fact your your approach to me was um you know that really um i really engaged with that you know like the way you wrote the way you introduce yourself and and explain the podcast and stuff uh so i find that really important that can impact your enjoyment of an interview as well but um um I don't know how I obtained Greg Chappell's number, but I did. And uh, so I can't remember how I did. And um, I introduced myself with the longest essay text of all time. Um, Greg Chappell, so Greg Chappell's been this figure of um, polarisation in Australian cricket since because he's had a lot of senior roles. And he is, to many people's minds, responsible for essentially gutting grade cricket in Australia and creating a bit of a two-tier approach where, you just cherry pick the best youngsters, get them into the system. They're the ones who'll play for Australia. Everyone else, uh, enjoy yourselves. If you're 23, 24, you're not going to make it. Why are you still here? Get out of here. Yeah. And, and 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 so a lot of people um, view him quite negatively for that approach. And we, um, you know, we got him on the show. Uh, I want to ask him about that because uh, he finished his role. So he was free to, you know, like all leaders, like XPMs and stuff, they're much more engaging when they're not in the role. Yeah. But um. We ended up having an hour-long conversation with him, and it was like a, I would say, a meeting of minds. But um, he presented himself uh, with a lot more, um, in a lot more compelling and considered way than I and many listeners had expected. And um, it was a great challenge to interview him uh, in a way that was skewed a little bit more seriously than the comedic stylings of TGC. And uh, Though I think a lot of the comedy at the start actually warmed him up, so yeah, that that yeah. was that was one that I was really proud of. It was a long one. I'm just trying to think of some others as well. I mean, Brad Hodge, on the other hand, that, that you know the Australian cricketer who didn't who you know didn't play the test matches he should have. We did it in person, and he really embodies that character of a of a a, a bitter dark man. Uh, and he played it. He played the character, and it was one of the funniest <laughs> interviews we've ever had. Like he. Brad Hodge is a freak batsman uh, and probably could have batted number three, between three and five for Australia for 100 tests. Yeah. He just came at the wrong time. Yeah. and um, But he's talking about playing for his, you know, 
Park AstroTurf team called East Sandringham wearing a Rajasthan Royals IPL lid <laughs> saying I'm going to I'm going to park this guy in the fucking car park you know <laughs> like um like and so that honesty was really appreciated yeah. you know that was one that always um stood out just just going back through it um uh you know talking to Adam Zampa te- you know telling us that he hated grade cricket that was really appreciated because you know a lot of people think that but don't say it um <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, there's going to be um, um, many others that come back, you know, like there's a lot of memorable interviews that were enjoyable, but in terms of, yeah, what you were asking around ones that surprised, uh, it was probably, probably, probably chapel, you know, Um, in terms of like hitting that grade cricket zone in a more existential way um, and in an interesting way that was, that was quite satisfying. Yeah. Cause I think that's one thing that, I've really appreciated with you two is with you and here goes it's this idea of it's not just two blokes that are really funny like you're actually like considerate conscientious like human beings as well like this idea of you're not limited to just a funny conversation about cricket Hmm. which is um which I appreciate anyway look there's going to be some people that are like yeah can we just talk about coats and all these different like oh, funny man. you know heaps what I mean? Of guys like that. <laughs> but, yeah, it's heaps of guys like that. But like, you know, there's something I kind of appreciate you you know, these moments of, you know, real like reflection and real introspection and yeah, just general conscientiousness overall. So yeah, I can understand that. But um Oh, I appreciate it. No problem. And whilst I'm there, the idea of you're in Melbourne now, but you are joined. You were joined. I'm. Ass- I think it was during the pandemic. I don't know if the timeline's right, but here goes. Joined you in Melbourne during that time, right? Mm. So how have you That's found? Right. How have you both found this idea of you're now on YouTube, which is where I was introduced to you? Um, how have you found being in person and doing those recordings together in person and having all these great moments, as well as you've exposed yourself to a far more international audience? I feel like because of look, the mm. running joke is like selling out for subs when it comes to the Indian Indian fans oh, yeah. and doing IPL bits and it's like look like Australia played India so makes a lot of sense in that sense anyway but and it's yeah. you know the global market of cricket almost so how have yeah. you found the idea of being more exposed to an international more global I would say just more maybe mm. and once again I'm looking at the prism as me as a, a Londoner that's you know you've probably had this wildly global audience but it's just me being like well i'm from london i'm from around the globe so now you've been exposed to me you've been exposed to Mm. loads of different people but how have you found being more in person with here goes and the idea of being doing more internationally based stuff as well as the aussie stuff that you still continue to do well um being in person with here goes is sensational you know like we're um we're where he, he's a great friend, he's a great person, he's a, he's a very, um, I use the word safe all the yeah. time, but like he's such a safe pair of hands and level-headed person to be around off air. He's a great, you know, he's, we don't have that many beers together because my my like lifestyle doesn't really permit it at the moment, <laughs> but like um, he's a great beer and like, um, so he's a great person to work with and I'm in it, you know, the studio is in his apartment, you know, um, most weekdays and i just can't really emphasize enough how much um more quality there is in our work when we record in person like it's 
not just, I mean, we used to, um, we used to record remotely and like, and it makes you, you know, that is like everyone records their voices separately. The files are sent to me. I sync it up in GarageBand and, you know, you're like, everyone will tell you comedy or trying to be funny is about timing. Well, mm. try and do that with like, you know, three or four separate internet connections um, in various parts of the world. Like yeah. I was living in London doing that. So the point is that him moving to Melbourne, not only like huge commitment, you know, to our work, but like, and so that's very stirring in its own way, but like, just technically speaking, like um, the sound is better, the timing is better. Like it, to see someone face to face and pick up that body language, I know we can do that with Zoom now and stuff, but like it just assists all elements of your work. You take more pride in your work because you, I think, because you're giving it the best chance to shine as it's meant to shine. Uh, and so that element of things has been great. I mean, for he goes like, and he won't ever permit me to speak for him for ego reasons, but I will um, for my ego reasons. Like he moved down to Melbourne a week before the lockdown started in Melbourne, you know? And so, and he, that was tough. Uh, he, he was, he's a um, single guy in an apartment. Um, I don't know why, but internet publishers were permitted workers during that time. Thank God, you know, so I could go over. But um, so he's, he's done so, um, with with a lot of commitment, you know, that, and stuff that you don't that doesn't really come up when you're experiencing the looseness of the show. Um, and then in terms of the international stuff and YouTube, like, um, yeah, we we filmed we started filming our stuff once he came down, once he came down, and like got got all this equipment and that and a, a lot of that was his work, you know, to to get that going. And um, then, but but the YouTube hadn't really like taken off. We put a lot of stuff up there from our podcast, but we only had very few subscri subscribers, and so it was it was a bit of an afterthought for us, really. And then yeah, you know, India destroyed Australia at the Gabba, and we found heaps of uh, views. And <laughs> more interestingly, really, was that like everyone will tell you in cricket media, oh, if you can crack it in India, you know, you'll be set. And in our experience over a few years of doing it, like India always felt like this sort of mirage in a lot of ways. And we're like, well, yeah, there might be lots of views, but how engaged are Indian fans and do they care? And also we talk about the most niche stuff that was informed from playing cricket between like 1999 and 2006, you know, like, and how much will that translate? And, we, but, but once when, they beat us and then found our work and <clears throat> the way we're talking about it, excuse me, yep. <clears throat> um, translated beautifully because a lot of the, you were talking about Sunday League football, I think a lot of the, <clears throat> um, the themes just still apply, you know, the theme of, of darkness, existentialism, bitterness, and we found a real affinity with that audience and like, and, and by the same token, you know, if people want your work, it's very difficult to like, to shun it, you know, and given Australia in particular have decided they don't, the men's team have decided they don't want to play cricket for a year. Yeah. Um, it's really opened up an opportunity for us to explore it, which we've happily done. And we've had some, some um, moderate success, you know, in the last six months. Um, we, we enjoy it. I've learned, I'm enjoying learning about India, to be honest, and testing my preconceived notions and, um, it's such a massive country. I don't like, it is funny how many people will be like, oh, don't sell out to India and stuff like that. And it's like nothing we've, that there's nothing in the new work that we are putting out that has changed what we were already previously doing. You know, everyone who used to like the great cricketer is still getting exactly what they got. So, um, 
I've enjoyed it. Just just riding the riding the wave, really, you know. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean that's almost laughable, right? This idea of a billion people in India that are all absolutely cricket mad. Yeah, don't bother. Mm. Yeah, don't bother like getting your cricket podcast and trying to like help get them involved in it. Like, I mean, it's just laughable. I think right? like pe- people could have like um, you can have misgivings if like if there's a band that you like who completely changed their sound so as to like cynically exploit a different market that likes that sound. So it's not only at the expense of what you used to like, but you don't hear it as much. I can understand artistically why somebody why people would have problems with that, you know, or think less of that band. But, like, for us, I creatively, we have stayed the same. Um, those who might, the same number of people who think that we pander to Indians by, like, talking them up are matched and probably doubled by Indians who think we sound like we hate them. So, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I've got competitors say that all the time. Like, we, I mean, we believe that we are saying all the things that we think and that we would say. I mean, I have great respect for Indian cricket and the absolute crazy talent that they have and the things that a lot of them are able to do. And there's also heaps of areas to mock the shit out of as well. And, you know, and we do so. uh, And a lot of Indian um, fans we find quite enjoy that roast, you know, Um, unless they're supporters of their prime minister, which is different. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Honestly, I remember putting a, a photo. It was a screenshot of the like Rohit. It was one test where he had his bat like completely behind the pad, and they said it was a shot offered. And Root reviewed yeah, it, yeah, saying yeah. he hasn't offered yeah. a shot. And uh, I put something like, "Yeah, he's definitely offered a shot," and got met with like, "Yeah, well, England cheated in the World Cup final in 2019." I was like, "Yeah, well played, whatever." Yeah, like, yeah, if, that, yeah. if that's where we're going, oh, yeah. so. But um, yeah. It's funny that you use the music musician analogy. That's the the one that came to my mind with like, for us, it's like, oh, Ed Sheeran was like performing in like small pubs and bars. And it's like, you know, imagine telling him like, yeah, no, don't try and like make a hit because like, you know, just stick to what you know. It's this idea of you don't get into a creative venture to not be willing to adapt and evolve. And this idea of like, actually, yeah, it just, it's lunacy to think that, anything should just be one way forever and that should be set in stone when it comes to a creative mm. outlet or project de- yeah de- definitely like I, but i still understand it from a like an audience standpoint i mean I, I wouldn't pretend that anybody follows us like someone might follow a band that they love you know yeah. but like i you know i love um like arctic monkeys for example and you know their sound has evolved and and, and i still you know like I fell in love with them with their first album and then they like, they moved away a little bit from the first album. And at the time I was like, Oh yeah, but I just want to hear that first album again. Cause you know, I'm like, I'm like 21 at the time. Yeah. I don't really have a grasp of like those, um, like, is it like the like, like high concept ideas of creative evolution. I'm like, just give me fucking, yeah. you know, give me dance floor yeah. shit. Oh, that's all I want. Like, we have that with fans like just give me the fucking champ stuff and shut the fuck up about you know the blm bullshit or whatever you know like <laughs> like too woke go woke go broke all that oh, sort of yeah. shit but like um there is a certain yeah like I, I i'm a bit um it is creatively like um stimulating to like speak to different audiences or to like even watch different cricket you know like he goes on talking today like Whereas I don't know if this is airing, but it was it's just after New Zealand's won the World Test Championship and we were just saying off air how like 
there was no flashpoints in the game. There was like no, uh, like everyone was well behaved. Actually, when England played India, that's what happened as well. And like, if you just follow Australian cricket, you just think that like that kind of um, hostility and aggression is actually like a prerequisite for any test match. But it's actually the, that's what's different. Like that's actually um, the odd, the odd thing out. And like, then I, you know, during, without mentioning anything, like during lunchtime of the New Zealand India game, it flicks over to this podcast that this um, network runs here and it's like blokes like just old Aussie cricketers like roaring about how shit Dom Sibley is and stuff yeah. like that. And you just, you know, I just, I said the Higos is like the experience when you watch a little bit of international cricket and you're away from Australia and then you come back to Australian cricket is like, you know how like if you watch your TV with the sound up really loud yeah. and then like you turn it down and you get used to that sound and you go, I'm just going to check what it was like when I go back up again. And you're like, holy shit, that yeah, was, yeah. I, was, I got used to this really loud sound. Like, that's kind of um, what Australian cricket's like a little bit. So, like, even even just, like, um, covering other countries or the IPL or something has actually been um, quite, like, energising for us because you're like, oh, here's this other world of cricket, you know, that most people follow. So Yeah, yeah. And you, you, you know, you guys don't have to talk about which Aussie player took a toasty onto the field. And all these, oh. <laughs> like all these different bits, and but yeah. I, but you know what we maybe have in English cricket, we don't have in football, which is what it is in terms of, yeah, English football fans make up for the lack of de- decorum there. I feel like when we're talking about a nil-nil draw with Scotland, and it's like, yeah, but Sterling shit though, and Kane's not really getting yeah, any chances, yeah. and all these different things. It's like. It's its own culture. It's almost, it's, um, I mean, I, I'm well aware of that. And yeah. it's like, it's, it's amusing to look on at um, from the outside, though I know it, it then um, kind of boils over into more um, serious abuse, yeah. which is just yeah. rubbish and, and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah, there's nothing with he goes and I talk about today. Like, you can find sections of any country and its style of like, um, you know, being assholes and they're there you know it's it, it is it is common to every country everyone has their own style of being pricks basically yeah yeah it doesn't stop me you know at watching a game at my mate's house being like get bellingham on what are we doing <laughs> yeah. you know, even that self-awareness yeah, exactly. it still doesn't stop me doing that so uh, oh yeah for sure we're gonna have, like well he goes and i'll have that this uh well, I can't speak to him, but um, yeah. this summer when England come out to us as well, I'm definitely just going to regress into being a side mouth, um, you know, a chesty, aggressive Australian because that's all we know when England comes out. It feels it actually feels quite comforting. <laughs> Before I ask the final four questions, I want to give you an opportunity to be reflective and forward thinking at the same time. So, Sam. Don't know why I've called you Sam there, but you know we'll work, we'll go with it. But anyway, Pez, what are some professional and personal hopes slash goals and or dreams as we get into you know the the English summer? But as we've kind of alluded to there, this idea of there's a very big Aussie and English cricket you know time coming with the T20 World Cup and the Ashes. I imagine that's going to be massive for you professionally. But what are maybe some personal and professional hopes when it comes to life going forward and hopefully the back end of this pandemic? Um, I think um, to speak generally about that, like my my professional hopes are 
to um, be a uh, yeah, professionally speaking, to you know, be a like a, a, a I suppose a meaningful um, contributor to like cricket or sports stories uh, and. I say to a companion because I actually think that regardless of whether you're in like TV or podcasts or radio or blogs or Twitter or whatever, like all anybody's really doing is narrating a sport so that people can have some kind of companionship while they enjoy it, you know, yeah. like yeah. it doesn't matter in what format or medium, it's really just people looking for friends or companionship or a way to uh, um, ancillary like way to enjoy what they're seeing. So um so long as like I can personally feel like um, providing comment or contribution that others get enjoyment out of, then I feel I'll be, I'll feel professionally fulfilled. Mm-hmm. You know, the moment that's not happening is when it's like, get clear out of there, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. So um, that's what, you know, I, I'll know if I'm doing that, like and finding ways to find ways to do that, whether it's through like TGC or my own, you know, writing or something like that, whatever, whatever the vehicle is. Um, and then personally, it's probably like, but probably, I mean, personally, I just, my thoughts just go to, um, you know, the family being healthy and one of the best ways you can look after others is to look after yourself first. So, um, so, you know, if you five days through to the summer, it'd, it'd be, you know, feeling, you know, healthy and organised, um, so that I can be good for others, and um, and then that flows through to them. So yeah, 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 Com- yeah. That sentiment specifically when you're talking about personally, I am um, wholeheartedly agree. So Pez, before I ask the final four questions, which I ask everyone, this is shameless plug time, and I really place an emphasis on shameless. Please, please, please let people know how they can get more Pez in their day. And uh, what you've got going on, person? Well, not personally. What you've got going on in general? <laughs> I thought you say shameless plug. I was going to say North Sydney Bears nineteen ninety four versus yeah. Brisbane. That's what I want people to watch. Yeah. And then, no, um, <laughs> fifteen fourteen. Jason Taylor field goal. One of the great. Um, no, no, well, nah, me. Uh, no, I mean, you know, our, my my professional world is one hundred percent TGC at the moment, and um. Um, and I don't need to say like, I mean, you just, just type it into Google if you want to, if you want to enjoy any of it, you know, yeah. there's a podcast, there's a YouTube channel, um, people can enjoy it in different ways if they want. There's a few books there, um, for, for a different way to enjoy it. And, um, and it, it's on social, but yeah, I don't have to say, you know, Apple, Spotify, uh, yeah, yeah, Facebook, but... Insta, you know, like, so, like that, that's pretty much it. We have a Patreon, you know, if people want to, um, back uh, get get behind it there we do we do a loose a looser sort of podcast uh every week there where um i think loose is probably the word as a bit of a bonus offering that's pretty much it i'm going to try and do a little bit of like personal um writing under my own name in the next few months uh but i guess if and when that comes along i'll i'll um post that out there so yeah that's that's where i'm at awesome that's fantastic for those of you listening please look in the show notes and that will be where what Pez has just said lives. So please check it out. Hmm. And yeah, right. Pez, final four questions. Believe it or not, I've I've still got very deep and life-fulfilling slash 
pondering questions for you, grand questions. Um, so these are four questions that I ask all the guests. And the first one is, if I was to give you a megaphone that spoke to the entire world and you could only share one message, what would it be? Um, one message. Mm. Um, you know, the first thing I want to do is ask you, like, what are the parameters of the message? I'm like, how, how, long, have, how long have I got, you know? And as a podcast host, you know the question is up to the guest's interpretation. Do as you wish. Mm. It, it, you know what? I'll be earnest. It would be um, to to find the love and light in yourself, um, so as to find the love and light in others, uh, and that would be, that would be it. Truly, uh, uh, I'm on a little bit of that kind of bent at the moment. You know, if we fired a megaphone to the world, I mean, no one's ever really had that in one go before. So <laughs> I'm like, I better, I, may, I better take it seriously. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, or, or or it was either that or you know. North versus Brisbane YouTube night. (laughs) And I would have accepted and loved both answers. So yeah, we'll just, yeah. Either one, depending on the mood, let's say it's contextual in that sense. (laughs) What pest do you get that day? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Have a little think to yourself. Plaza magic bullet theory. Look it up. Yeah. (laughs) In your head, you're like, I've got this very lovely message, but, also, oh, no. <laughs> also watch this game. So, yeah, yeah, I'll have it as Back a PS. Headingly, that was out. Yeah, anyway, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> <laughs> that was salmon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. God, so, yeah. No matter what Stoke says on a Sky Sports watch along. Um, <laughs> number two, what's a personal struggle that you battle with that many people may not know about? I I struggle to. Um, I often struggle to remember innately like my core values you know as like alarming as that sounds i i, I need to like write and re- like read my like phone notes and to like connect into like what i'm about sometimes i need to constantly write it down i actually find i can easily i can quite easily depart from them or feel disconnected i mean i don't have a like a defined list you know necessarily but like that oh, that that's a real struggle because that you know who i am and what i care about and my goals and what i'm what i'm trying to achieve like that's really what drives you you know being a good person or feeling like you're actually doing what you're here to do uh and so i can actually quite easily like depart from that um if i'm not being mindful uh of, of what they are i can i can get into autopilot i can drift i can get like lost in my phone um you know i can be uh, the the gap between my best and my worst is further further apart than um what i'd often like it to be and so um and as far as i can tell so far it's 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 because i'm whenever i am you know towards the worst part side of myself it's because i'm not really in tune with what I'm, what I want to do, you know, I can easily forget it if that makes sense. So no, it does, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I um, mm. I could, ex- yeah, I could expound, but you've put it in a way mm. that I really appreciate, so I don't want to touch it. Mm. I like it. Mm. Um, number three, what are three personality traits slash characteristics that you would say you've built your life upon up to this point? Uh, one is the um, the like the sacred power and 
um, importance of humor. <laughs> yeah. Um, la- maybe, maybe laughing. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe I'll say that one. Um, I would say, uh, you know, personality. I just The other one I would just say is like um, just warmth generally as – you know, as best as I as best as I can, but I just remember that was something like at our at our wedding we had like quite a few people there, and it ended up just warmth. You know, it was just a word that I used a lot in when I spoke, and I didn't really appreciate. It actually comes from my mum, that kind of thing. She's a very warm person, but that um is um something that is a bit of a like a motif for me. And then um, I just think yeah, trying trying your best to um, be other person minded mm. um I, I, I and and i say that like i say that as an ambition you know and not not something that um I, I feel particularly good at but i do believe that it is um so so critical to um to like healthy functioning of not just an individual but uh but but the collective on on a both a micro and macro scale you know uh, i think other centeredness is um so underrated and so powerful i love it yeah I, yeah yeah once again have the ability to expound we'll leave it alone because i love mm. the answer um final question this is my favorite question that i get to ask people many years into the future your time as sam Pez Perry is coming to an end. The person closest to you only has one sentence to describe you and your time here on earth. What would you hope that would be? Um, sorry, this is a dumb thing in my, in my head. Um, I love it. It's exactly uh, the way my mind works. <laughs> wanna, the immediate thing you don't want to say. I want to ruin it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Smallest penis a lot. No, um, sorry, um, sorry. No, no, that's um, that's beyond priceless. But yeah, um, sorry, I'm probably giggling because it's such a deep, it's such a deep question. What what would you hope that say? I don't know. It's probably connected. It's probably connected to what I just said. Yeah, what I just said before. You know, um, warm, warm, loving, inspiring person who cared um, about who cared about am I dead already yeah I can't remember yeah care yeah. or cares about um others and you know wants to see you know fairness in the world for people who um you know for for everybody I guess you know I know they're they're lofty it's a lofty complex on the air but you only got a sentence so you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. no I um yeah no I love that that's absolutely fantastic Pez, I'm super, super appreciative of your time. For those of you that don't know, I've literally, you know, probably dragged Pez away from his bed in terms of the time that because of the time difference. So cannot appreciate not only your time, but just energy story. I'm a massive, massive fan, as we've discussed, of TGC. So for those of you that do want some comedy in your life and just some really, I guess, just intriguing and interesting approaches to the way that podcasting is, please check it out. And yeah, this will be a goodbye to the guests. So goodbye, everyone.